0: happiness is an iPhone 7. What do you think? Do you think maybe that's a little bit of what uh, we in sales used to call overselling? Is that really where you're going to find your happiness is in an iPhone 7? This obviously is an old ad because you certainly wouldn't find any happiness in an iPhone 7 today. You have to have an iPhone 8 to find happiness today, wouldn't you? So, this is yeah, this is something that we in this in sales and this is Back in the day when I worked in sales, uh, we'd call it overselling. You're, you're, you're saying you're, this product that we're selling you is going to change your life, is going to, to really revolutionize you, is really going to change you, is going to make your life so much better, and really it's just a phone. Uh, it's not much more than that. But do we really believe that when we see something like that, when we see that happiness is an iPhone 7 or something like that as an ad? We don't really believe that, do we? Because we take that sort of information in the context in which it's given. We know it's an ad. We know they're trying to sell us a product. We know that this is maybe not really the truth. And, and we, we accept that. It doesn't bother us because we, we understand where it's coming from. We understand the context in which that information is being delivered to us. And so we have a little bit of a a skeptical attitude towards it. So we might read this, but we don't, we don't really believe it. The problem with something like that is that skepticism spe- starts to spill over into all aspects of our life, into different, different aspects of our life. The things that we read, the, uh, the things that we're exposed to, the information we receive, and we're always a little skeptical about whether it, it really is true does that also spill over into our attitude about God? Do we really hope in Him and trust in Him? Or do we just think that that's just one of those things that people say and maybe we don't really believe it. It doesn't really mean that much to us. And so when we say that God is our hope, God is our refuge and our strength, let me encourage you this is not just some kind of ad campaign. But this is true. This is a basic fundamental truth. And this is what I want us to think about today. What is our hope? Where is our hope? And I want us to look this morning at Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 to 20. And this is where uh, the passage we'll be looking at today. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 to 20 starts out. It says, When God made his promise to Abraham, Since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so, after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. People swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of His purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised. He confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind a curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Like many passages in the book of Hebrews, there's a lot in these few words. And so, I just want us to take a few minutes this morning to look and to pull out a few truths, always thinking about the hope that we have in God. But there's truths there that we need to be aware of. There's important things uh, that we need to learn from this passage. The first thing to note is that, uh, that this passage, the writer of Hebrews is tying this back uh, with a reference to Abraham, tying it back into the Old Testament. And so he's grounding what he has to say in the Old Testament. And, when, and this makes sense when we look at the book of Hebrews in general. We see that the, the book of Hebrews many, many places, in fact, throughout the whole book, it ties Jesus back to the Old Testament. It connects Christ to the words of the old, of what we call the Old Testament, but the words of the Scriptures that they had at that time. And so all they had at that time was the Old Testament, was the Jewish Scriptures. And this is connecting Christ to those again and again in many different ways. The author wants of Hebrews wants to go back and to tie Jesus into the Jewish Scriptures, connect Him to that, and help people to see that He is a fulfillment of the Old Testament of the Jewish Scriptures, and so we see this again and again. We see that Christ is put forward again as a, as a, as supreme in so many areas of uh, Jewish life. That Christ is supreme to the is superior. He's over all the angels. He is superior to Moses. He is superior to the priests in every way. The author of the book of Hebrews looks and says, Jesus is superior. He also says that makes the point that Christ is sufficient as the One who is the bringer of God's grace. That Christ is the One who does it once and for all. His sacrifice is a once-for-all sacrifice. The work that Jesus did finished all, completed all that was there in the Jewish Scriptures. And so He comes at it again and again and He brings us back to Jesus and the fulfillment uh, of uh, the Jewish Scriptures that we find in Jesus. And as he's taking these steps, as he's making these statements, we realize why it's called the book of Hebrews. Because it's clearly written to the Hebrews. It's written to the Jews because all these things are important really only to the Jews, not to the Gentiles. What is the what? What difference does it make to a Gentile, someone who's not a Jew, that Jesus is superior to Moses? Because Moses is nobody to the to the Gentiles; he's only significant to the Jews, the priests, the angels. All these things are only significant to the Jews, and so he is clearly writing to a to a Jewish audience, not a Gentile one. And yet, at times, he stops and he talks about the Gentiles, and he makes a point about the Gentiles, and usually it's to To remind the Jews that the Gentiles are now part of God's family as well, and so let's take a look at uh, at what it says in the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter six, verses thirteen to fifteen. And he starts out this this passage, uh, in the begin in in the beginning of this passage in verses thirteen to fifteen. And these set up for us our understanding of the rest of the passage the writer here of the book of Hebrews is getting ready to say something, but he needs to set a little bit of context. He needs to set a little bit of the backstory for us. He needs to uh, point out something, connect it back to the Old Testament. So he's getting ready to say something about what God has promised, but he starts out first by pointing back in time to Abraham and reminding the readers of the promise that God made To Abraham. When this was written, when this book was written, Abraham was a character already in the lives of the Jewish people. He was already a character 2,000 years in the past. And so for us, standing here today, Abraham, we're looking back at Abraham over four millennium. 4,000 years ago, Abraham uh, was walking the earth. And yet God brings that up to us today as a reminder of His promise. And He brings it up through the book of Hebrews here. This is the connection to the Hebrew people. They understood the story of Abraham. They would have known him. They saw Abraham as their father. Father Abraham. He was the founder of their nation. And so they would have understood Abraham. He was one who God had chosen. And they were God's chosen people because God had chosen Abraham. And so they would have connected deeply with the story of Abraham. And so he, makes, he starts out by pointing back to Abraham before they, he brings them to, the current, to their current day. So the first thing he says is that God promises something. God has a promise to make. And he says that when God made His promise to Abraham, he says there was no one greater to swear this promise by. In fact, God was greater than anybody, than anything and so there's nothing for him to swear on except himself. And he, what he's saying is he's saying I'm, I'm not going to violate my own character. I am not going to fail to do what I have promised to do. There is nothing else for God to do except to rest on His own character. We might find something else that we can make a promise by, you know. If you go to uh, to court or something, you might swear on the Bible, or if you uh, you sometimes you might say, "I swear on my mother's grave." And we need to think about whether we should actually be doing that sort of thing or not. But we we want to we want to to make our oath somehow binding, and to and to really emphasize that this is something we're going to do. We're uh, I, I don't know if any of you were were were, were such children, but uh, I remember when I was a when I was a kid. One of the things we would do would, would be to if, if we were with our friends and we really wanted to seal a deal, we would make a blood oath, and you'd each prick your finger with a pin. Anybody do that? And you'd smear. You. No, did anybody, nobody did that. Am I the only one? Okay, one person, one other person did that. I guess that's a, maybe I'm too old or something. I don't know. But that's what we would do. And we would make a blood oath. And when you did that with your friend, it was, it was like you, you were... It just sealed the, the deal. It made the promise more secure because you had to do something more than just say, I'm going to do it. And, and it, so that's the kind of thing that we would do when, when I was a kid, anyway. Um, I don't recommend... If, if you're thinking the you your kids should, you should go and do this, I, I wouldn't recommend it. It really doesn't make any difference. But anyway... Um, but, but God is, 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 is saying here that he, there was nothing for Him to swear by. Nothing to make His promise more secure. And so, He swears by Himself. He swears uh, by Himself. Just to say this is certain. This is secure. This promise I'm making is unchangeable. And then He goes on to say in verse 14, the promise He gives the promise That God will bless, this is the promise he makes to Abraham. I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. So there's a promise here that God is going to bless and multiply Abraham no matter what happens. And then we see in verse 15 Abraham's response. It says So after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. So Abraham waited for that promise, he waited for that fulfillment. He knew that God was going to fulfill uh, that promise in, his, in God's own time and that God is going to do this. When we stop and look, we know that that might not be all there is to the story. We know the story because we have that recorded for us in, in the book of Genesis. We know the story and it's not really that simple. Uh, God makes that promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, and again in Genesis chapter 15, and in Genesis chapter 17. God repeats that promise to Abraham, and he says, he he tells Abraham in different ways that I'm going to bless you, I'm going to multiply you, I'm going to bless all nations through you. And so God repeats that promise to Abraham, and part of that promise is that is that God is going to multiply. Uh, God is going to give you many descendants. He's going to multiply uh, Abraham's descendants. And you know the story. Abraham maybe isn't quite so sure about it. His wife Sarah is not sure at all that this, is a good, uh, that this is going to happen. They get a little tired. Especially Sarah gets a little tired of waiting for that promise to be fulfilled. And she commits, uh, convinces Abraham uh, to uh, have a child by her, man, or her maidservant Hagar. And that produces Ishmael. But that's not the child that God wanted. That wasn't the fulfillment of the promise. That was someone who was looking for that promise to be fulfilled and wasn't waiting patiently for it. Um, Some 25 years later, though, we find that that promise that God made to Abraham is finally fulfilled through Isaac. And so Abraham had to wait 25 years for the fulfillment of God's promise to him. Is there a promise that you have from God that you've been holding on to for 25 years? Is there something that you've been holding on to to see God do in your life or in the life of your family? And you've been waiting patiently for 25 years. I know people who have had a spouse who were not Christians and they prayed faithfully for them for years and years and years until finally that one came to Christ. That's a patient waiting for God to fulfill a promise. But would we describe ourselves as people who wait patiently? Maybe your definition of waiting patiently is, is when there's three cars ahead of you in the drive-thru, you can wait patiently. But if there's five or six, you, you start to get a little uncomfortable. If there's ten, that's a real test of your patience. Having to wait that Three, four, five minutes to get your cup of coffee at the drive through And that's, that's what our society is like. That's what we're like. We, we don't have a sense of patient waiting. And yet here, the writer is pointing back to Abraham and say he waited patiently for God to fulfill His promise. So the writer before of Hebrews, before he gets into the meat of what he wants to say, he reminds us, of the, the waiting, the patient waiting of Abraham. He gives us the context for understanding of what he's about to say as Abraham and his patient waiting. So that should be in our minds as we read on in this passage. We should keep that in the back of our minds. Abraham patiently waited for God to fulfill His promise. But then in verse 16, we see that the writer directs us to start to think about ourselves. So, we've got the background of Abraham and the promise that was made and how Abraham waited patiently. Now, let's think about us. So, the writer directs us to look at, at our situation. He says, People swear by someone greater than Im- themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all arguments. Okay, so he says, We need to, uh, that, that, that people today need to. Uh, swear on something greater, to make an oath, to make it more uh, substantial. And we do that today in a way we don't just take someone's word for it. If we go and we make a, a, some kind of deal, we want a signature on a piece of paper. We want a signed contract if it's, if it's even more significant. Uh, and even more of a significant commitment, we then want to have someone witness our signature it 's not enough simply to have your signature on the document. you need to have someone witness, so it is uh, to make sure that it is actually you doing this because it 's more uh, it 's more important and so we we kind of understand this that that we need to have that kind of assurance there. We do this all the time if you stop and think about it every time you you, you get one of those Things that says, you know, on the website, it pops up and it says, click here to agree. You click, you agree. How many of you have read those end user agreements? Uh, okay, a couple of you have read, good for you. You actually read those things. Most of us just scroll to the bottom, click on I agree. Because what, what else are you going to do? If you don't agree, you don't get the software you want to use, right? Um, but that's, uh, that's us making some kind of agreement. We are uh, swearing in a way by ourselves, we're making this agreement. To do this. And so we look at, we, we, we start to, to see our, our, our situation and say, okay, what is it? What is it that puts an end to all this argument? And so uh, we, we make some agreement. And then we see our attention is turned to God. And now we see the situation with God here. He shows us. More convincingly, he he does this in a way that really seals the deal. We look at the situation with God, and it's described to us in verse 17 and 18. The beginning of verse 18, he gives a promise and an oath. And the writer also reminds us that God—it's impossible for God to lie. That would violate God's very character. God didn't have to uh, produce a document that stood the test in a court of law or anything but he had to he did something to reassure the heirs of the promise it says the heirs of the promise the heirs of what was promised he had to reassure in some way so he he that, that that they were going to get what was actually promised and so he does that with an oath and a promise he he makes the promise but then he gives an oath as well just to reassure us that this is going to happen. He's not trying to appease some higher authority, but He's saying, I'm doing it I'm doing it for those who are going to receive the promise so that they can be sure of what they are going to receive. So that there is no doubt in their minds that they are going to receive this. Because we might doubt. If someone says to you, well, I'm going to give you a million dollars. And just comes up to you and says, I'm going to give you a million dollars. You would really doubt it. You, would, you know, you would say that's that's not going to happen because they all they all they have done is they have told me they're going to do it. I doubt that they're ever going to do it. Now, if they start to give you a legal contract, then you start to say, okay, now I'm starting to believe them. And if they uh, give you a down payment, they give you a part payment, then you really start to believe it. You see, they, they, they we need that reassurance, and this is what God is doing for us. He is saying, I'm going to reassure you of this promise. I've given you my promise. I've told you I'm going to do this. Now I'm making an oath that I'm going to do this. And God is reassuring the heirs of the promise that they are going to get what God has promised them. That's us. We are the heirs of that promise that God had made to Abraham. Stop and think about that for a few minutes. That God had made a promise to Abraham 4,000 years ago. And we are the ones today, 4,000 years later, that are benefiting from that promise that God made to Abraham. It's pretty remarkable. No wonder we need reassurance because we think, well, how can I be the recipient of a promise made to some dude 4,000 years ago, in a different part of the world, in a totally different setting, how can I receive that promise? How can I benefit from what God had promised to Abraham? And the Apostle Paul had uh, anticipated that very question. And we see in the book of Romans, chapter 4, in Romans, chapter 9, and here in this passage, in Galatians chapter 3, verses 6-9, to Paul explains that very thing to us. And so Paul writes and he says, So also Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand, understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the Gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you so those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham the man of faith the bible is clear paul is clear in this all those who believe are abraham's children are considered to be abraham's children and what are the benefits of being someone else's child they can be many a sense of belonging in a community that we are we are someone's child we have that understanding we can uh, and, and sometimes we maybe undervalue that sense of belonging and that need that we have for a sense of belonging. When I go back to Ontario, I can go back to some parts of Ontario and I can see, uh, visit graveyards and see those of, of my ancestors who were buried there 200 years ago. Uh, I, I can go back to Pennsylvania and see where my first ancestors uh, came over from uh, Europe and settled in Pennsylvania in the in 1740s and 1750s and it gives me a sense of belonging and that that this is where i'm from this is this is my people so we shouldn't under, undervalue that need for community that we have and so being abraham's children gives us a sense of belonging a sense of identity of who we are what also happens is we're someone's child we have uh, we come under the care and protection of that family structure. So we come back to the care and protection of Abraham and, and who, is, who looks after Abraham. It's God Himself. And so we can uh, take some reassurance at that. But what he's talking about in, in the book of Hebrews is an inheritance. What do we inherit? That's something that we as children, we receive from our parents. We receive an inheritance and that's the connection we have with Abraham as we become his children. We are people who will receive uh, what Abraham had. What did Abraham have that was of such great value? They had that promise from God. The promise that He will bless them and He will multiply them. And so that's what we hold on to. That's what God is trying to reassure us about is that we, here today, those of us here today who are people of faith, not just here, to, not just here in this building, but all across the world, those who share that faith in Jesus Christ have that hope, that promise that God made to Abraham, uh, that that He will bless us and He will look after us, He will provide for us, He will cause us to multiply. But how do we become Abraham's children? That's for the question that Paul is answering. Simply by faith, those who have faith. In Jesus Christ, enjoy the blessings and the promises that God made to Abraham. We inherit them because we are considered Abraham's children. We inherit that blessing. And this is where the point that Paul is trying to make here that all of us, all of those who are who live by faith, can receive that promise made to Abraham, and it's made to all people, not just Jews. Galatians chapter three here uh, verse eight. Even the Gentiles are justified by faith. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentile by, Gentiles by faith. Gentiles are as much children of Abraham as the Jews. This is a wonderful, hopeful message for all people. Anyone can become a child of Abraham. You and I can become children of Abraham by faith. And have we have, through that faith, we have full access to the promises and blessings. That were, pro- that were given to Abraham. An African child in some remote village can become a child of Abraham. An adult in the mountains of Guatemala can become a child of Abraham. An outcast Dalit in India can become a child of Abraham. Anybody can become a child of Abraham. The people across the street can become children of Abraham. What an incredible concept of hope this has for us that we all, every single person on the face of the earth, can become a child of Abraham through faith. Despite your background, despite your history and maybe your past failures and the things that you've done in your life, you can become a child of Abraham when you turn to God in faith. And that promise is secure. That's the point he's trying to make. That once we do that, once we make that step of faith, that promise is secure. That we will receive that blessing. And it's sealed by God Himself. And so this is a a message of hope. And that's what he goes on to say In Hebrews chapter 6, the last part of verse 18, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We are encouraged because of that promise that God has made to Abraham and that we are God's children. And so we find ourselves uh, in that place of holding on to that hope that we have. That hope that's secure and solid. And we should be encouraged by that. And yet, sometimes that hope fades and it disappears maybe altogether. We get affected by the situation we're going through and the challenges that we face in life and we begin to wonder where is that blessing. We look at our lives and we say, I don't really see any blessing. And it feels like my life is going nowhere. Or maybe instead of going nowhere, it's getting worse and worse as I go along. And so we stop and we ask, where's the blessing? We might find that we're discouraged because God has not come through for us. They're giving us the life plan that we wanted. We don't, didn't get into the school that we wanted. We don't get the job that we wanted or the life partner that we are looking for. Maybe we don't find the church that we go to entirely sufficient. Or the preachers that we hear on Sunday mornings aren't quite what we might want. And so we find our hope dwindling away. We find our hope dwindling away and we think, where is the blessing? You know, years ago when we were first in Zambia, our truck was stolen at gunpoint. I was driving at the time and I think I've told many of you the story. And three guys came up and one of them had a gun pointed it at me and said, get out of the truck. So I got out and they got in and drove away and left me standing there going... What just happened? <laughs> and uh, it wasn't actually far from our home, so I, wa- I walked home and uh, uh, went through all that we we needed to do after that. Uh, but even today, I wonder what was the point of that? You know, because at the at the at the time, you think, uh, you know, you start to think, okay, uh, there has to be some lesson here that I'm supposed to learn. Um, and uh, I was like, well, I'm not sure what lesson I've learned, and even years later, I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not sure I learned a great, a great deal through that. But Lydia did. Lydia learned something through that. And we came to, to a place where we were able to help others who have gone through a similar situation. So even though I look at myself and I say, I'm not sure I learned much through that, but others did. And we were able to help others. So I can even come to accept that sort of situation as a blessing, even though at the time it surely did not feel like much of a blessing. Um, the effects of that uh, stayed with me for a long time. Um, it was uh, it was years before I could actually talk about it openly without uh, getting all nervous and sweaty, uh, remembering that uh, that evening. And so sometimes these things happen, and we look and we wonder where is the blessing? But somewhere in there, there is a blessing. And of course, the final, the the ultimate blessing is not in this life at all. It's not in the church that we go to on Sunday morning. It's not in the wealth that we have, but it's in having eternal life through Jesus Christ as we put our faith in Him. No one, nobody can take that from us. We are secure. That is our hope. We can lose everything that we have here on earth, even our very lives, and yet, no one can take that eternal life from us. That's the hope. That's the blessing that we hold on to. That is what we, where we have put our faith is to have that eternal life. And so, we hold on to that hope. And we should be encouraged, as the passage says. We should be encouraged by that. And then finally, the writer of Hebrews here points us to Jesus Christ. That hope. The writer doesn't just leave us with God and Abraham, but he points us to Jesus. This hope that we have has entered the most holy place behind the curtain. He has become the high priest for us. Different and better than any other high priest before. And He is the mediator between us and God. And yet, He is also God Himself. This is a profound, deep truth here that the writer describes as a sure and steadfast anchor for our soul. Firm and secure. There is Jesus. He goes into the most holy place. He goes into the very presence of God where only the Most High Priest ever went once a year. And He tears open the curtain and welcomes us all into that very presence of God. We can go before God without fear of punishment and and fear of, of, of our own lives. From the time of Adam and Eve, we, we've been separated from God by our sins. Now Jesus has come and opened a way for us to, to come into the presence of God. He's broken down that separation that we experienced from God. And the writer of Hebrews in, 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 uh, in, in chapter 4, he encourages us to boldly approach the throne of grace which we can do through the blood of Jesus Christ. This throne of grace hidden for so many years behind the curtain has now been revealed and we can go and we can find mercy and grace because Jesus is our great High Priest in our time of need. This is a a hope that should encourage us. This is the hope. Jesus is that hope that is the anchor for our soul. Holding our souls safe and secure just where it should be. And we can be encouraged by that. That's a... That's a wonderful, uplifting truth that we hold on to that. And no matter what's happening around us, we hold on to Jesus being the anchor of our soul. Think of the anchor of a large ship, a huge and heavy thing that's raised and lowered by this massive chain. And when it's dropped from the ship, it digs into the seabed and it holds that ship steady and that's the image that he's giving us there that Jesus is that anchor our hope in him is an anchor for our soul holding us safe and steady as the storms of life come and throw us around Jesus is there to hold us secure our faith is is there our hope is there holding us secure and safe and that should be an encouragement to us that's what i want us to take away from this is that is that this is our hope. We should be encouraged. But sometimes the wheels come off the bus and we find ourselves discouraged and disheartened and wondering where God is and if He even exists. What can we do about that when those sorts of times come? There's a few things. One is we can uh, practice humility. Come to God with humility. First Peter chapter 5, verses 6 and 7 says, Humble yourselves under God's mighty hand, that He may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on Him. Come to God with humility. Instead of dictating to God what blessings that you want God to give to you, you accept what God has given to you. You let God show you the blessings that He has for you. Come to God. Lay all your burdens on His feet. And He will lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxieties on Him humble yourselves come to god you can't surprise or offend him but just humble yourselves and come to him the second thing we can do is remember and this is Joshua chapter 4 verses 1 to 8 and it's when they had crossed over the river and and they take the 12 men each take a stone and they set it up and and it's it's there as a remembrance and he he says as they the reason they do this is so that when your children ask you, it says, what do, you, what do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are a memorial to the people of Israel forever. This is something to remember. And sometimes when we get discouraged, that's what we need to do. is We need to stop and remember God's faithfulness. Stop and remember how God has helped in the past and the blessings that you've received. And maybe uh, look beyond that and and talk to others and find out the blessings that they have received. But take time to remember. The third thing is to wait. In Psalm 27, verses 13-14, to he says, I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. Sometimes we need to wait. Abraham it's set as an example to us of waiting, someone who's waited 25 years, sometimes to receive the blessing, to receive that which has, God has, uh, wants to give us. We need to wait. Don't push God to your own timetable, but wait for Him. And the last thing, sometimes we just simply need to rejoice. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 16-18, rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Sometimes despite the the troubles we're going through, we simply rejoice. We simply have to rejoice. Not in our situation because our situations can be miserable. Our lives can be really, really difficult. But we look at God and we say, I rejoice because of who God is. Not because of what I'm going through, but because of who God is because of His unchanging, faithful character. We take our eyes off ourselves and we put them on God instead. And we we can rejoice as we look at God. Paul is a great example to us of someone who rejoiced in every circumstance. Not because of the circumstance, but because of who God is. And so sometimes when we're discouraged and disheartened, we just need to rejoice. Maybe that's what you can do tonight. Come to to pursue and just rejoice. Just praise God. For, just come and praise God for who He is. and Set aside what's happening in your life. The Apostle Paul said he can boast when he is weak because in his weakness, Christ's power then can rest on him. So Hebrews chapter 6 is a message of encouragement. It's a message to encourage us to have hope made certain by God's promise. And so we're not to be discouraged, but we're to be encouraged. We're to be hopeful, Christians, on a hope that never fails. A hope grounded in Christ and in the promise made to Abraham. A promise made to Abraham uh, so many years ago. And now we are children of Abraham. And so we receive that promise. Our hope is in Christ. The sure and steadfast anchor of our soul holding our soul safe and secure just where it should be. That's our hope. We should be encouraged. We should be hopeful. That's what God wants for us today. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Your Word encourages us to be hopeful and to be encouraged. To not despair, but to hold on to the hope that we have. A hope made secure by Your character and Your promises to us. Lord, help us to live in that hope. Help us to live secure with our uh, souls that connected to that anchor, Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.